Okay, great. Uh, next up, we've got Will LaForest, and Will is the public sector CTO over at Confluent. If you can come on, there he is. And I asked you, um, we should have done a poll question, Will, but where where is that Vista behind you? I would have been great. I didn't get it wrong. I think I, I didn't get it right. I was in a, in a different area of the country, but uh, let us know that it's just kind of a striking city there against the uh, yeah. backdrop. Yeah, I ask that people a lot of, uh, I ask that question a lot of times to people because, you know, it's got the sort of Mediterranean rooftops there, but it's right up against the mountains. Um, it's one of my favorite cities, uh, Turin, actually. So uh, great place to, great place to visit. Fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to your talk. Thank you. Yeah, great. Awesome. Um, so let me just, uh, I have some visuals uh, while I'm uh, sort of talking through this topic uh, on uh, Data Fabric. Hopefully everyone can see it now. So I'm really going to, to be honest, I'm going to avoid talking about any specific technologies in this quick lightning session. Um, and instead, I'm just going to focus on a trend picking up steam um, that as government technology leaders, we need to be aware of, and that's the data fabric. Um, for a more detailed look at this topic, feel free to hit my Medium article um, at the bit.ly link here posted on the screen. It's really only a 10-minute read, but it does go into some of the open source options uh, available in building one. Um, let's see here. So while this trend or maybe uh, this architectural pattern is a better way to put it, um, has had numerous names. Industry has really started to coalesce on this term of data fabric. And it's kind of been capped off with Gartner's uh, definition or slash endorsement last year. But to be honest, right, who, who really cares about the name? It, it is helpful to have a known label for communication purposes. But what's important is actually the, the central axiom, which is make it easy to share data. Uh, and by now, it's uh, pretty much everyone understands the um, importance and value of being data-driven, right? Leveraging the value of the data assets we have. Uh, the move to software and data centricity has obviously turned industry upside down. Um, companies that have made this leap, where we're born with this, have thrived, and the companies that have not, uh, wither. Um, and as I'm sure uh, we're all aware, um, it's, not, it's, you know, it's just as critical in government. And it's been explicitly stated in the form of policy, right, with the federal data strategy. As the mission statement says, we really have to unlock the value of government data and leverage it um, for our missions. Data fabric is something that really enables this. Um, sounds great, right? But here's the problem. We kind of all face a reality that looks like this. Uh, countless data silos, some ancient and uh, some newer and a mess of point-to-point -point solutions for how data flows, it, how it is shared in an organization. Uh, and by now, uh, you know, it consists of a number of different technologies um, that frankly were put in place for good reasons with legitimate motivations, probably to solve some of the data sharing issues we're talking about now. Um, in this mess, you know, we, we typically see a combination of ETL tools or messaging and random services, custom code, et cetera. So obviously, you know, data fabric or any technology or any pattern, it, it isn't magic, right? It's built on top of components, these technologies. So, you know, you have to ask the question, why won't a data fabric just add more noodles uh, than remove uh, from this spaghetti diagram? No doubt other trends in the past have sought to help uh, and just got added to the pile. 
And this kind of brings me to some critical properties of a data, of a data, of a data fabric to make it work. Uh, if we start building one and it doesn't support these characteristics, we will have to just, you know, we will just add it to the mess rather than fix anything. Um, first, the data fabric needs to decouple uh, uh, sources and destinations uh, for the data, right? They shouldn't need to know about each other. If they do, uh, if they do know about each other, what you've done is created an N squared organizational and management problem uh, for the mathematicians. Technically, it's N times N minus one divided by two. Um, but, but you know, if you look at this picture on the left, there's only four groups here, and it already looks really scary. Um, so you really want to avoid everyone having to talk to everyone else, uh, both people and uh, systems. Um, to decouple, you need something brokering in the middle. So that's sort of the first thing. Next, you need to be able to support consumers of data, both in real time, but also historically, right? In this picture here, you have a, a data timeline where the oldest data is on the left, moving to the most recent data on the right. It would be nice to share all the data in real time, but many of the systems out there, both uh, providing data and receiving data, don't work in real, uh, in real time, right? They, they may require some batch processing. Um, and you also need to allow for unreliability in the data consumers. Uh, they can go offline uh, or there can be network problems, et cetera. Um, thirdly, you need to enable projects and groups who want to share uh, data or consume data to do this in an automated fashion, removing as much of the human organizational factors as possible. This is really sort of the frictionless aspect that Gartner was talking about. This means there needs to be well-documented and under understood APIs, off-the-shelf connectors to avoid redundant and uh, costly development, and data governance. Um, it turns out that data governance is a really you know, is really important when you're building a data fabric or really just sharing uh, data in general. Um, there are a lot of components to data governments. Uh, uh, I'm obviously not gonna talk about it all <laughs> in a short amount of time, but I'd like to cover sort of the key ones with a data fabric. Um, first off, a data fabric, you know, you have to allow people to actually find the data they care about, right? It's not about one person saying, you know, communicating with a bunch of other people and saying, hey, I just published some data. Right, you need to be able to people say, okay, I'm looking for a kind of data. I'm interested in this kind of data. What is there in the data fabric? And they need to be able to be able to read and understand the data. And this is typically done with like a data catalog or a schema registry and usually a combination. Um, so that you avoid individuals having to sort of uh, try and trace or hunt it down, it needs to provide the provenance of the data being shared. Where did it come from, right? How has it been processed? Um, what's its data lineage? And of course, security and access control is important. It's, it's not just about stopping people from getting data they shouldn't. It's about enabling people who need to provide the data, the comfort, um, the assurance is probably a better word, um, that uh, their data is only going to go to the people they care about um, so that they'll buy into it. If uh, you don't have critical mass with the data available in the data fabric, there really is not much point. And with that, um, honestly, I'd like to just conclude by saying, you know, data fabrics are happening at large scale in industry with great success. Um, uh, both newer companies whose entire businesses depend upon leveraging and sharing data, you know, the likes of LinkedIn, for instance, but also established companies in the FinServe sector, 
healthcare, automotive, retail, et cetera. In government, right, let's serve, protect, defend our citizens by leveraging data and supporting the ideals of federal data strategy. Um, I believe the data fabric will be a powerful tool in achieving this. And uh, at this point, I'd like to turn it back over to you, Tom. No, thank you for that, Will. I think, of it, you know, I, I had a, a summit about four or five years ago, you know, the rise of the, you know, the chief data officer. I think what we saw with COVID, that's massively accelerated. Uh, there's no debate anymore and how important our data is. And I think we've learned that through pandemic. So thank you for that. You bet. Okay. That was Will LaForest, uh, public sector CTO over at Confluent. And now we are going to hear from my good friend, Peter Durand, who's VP of uh, Acquia Federal Sector. I think you got you on mute there, Peter. Great, hey, Tom. All right, glad to, glad to be here. Um, let me grab a slide here just real yeah. quick. And, and then- And uh, I will say one thing about Peter. He, uh, boy, you guys were ahead of your time. How many times have we heard digital transformation? I think you, you were definitely one of the first companies to actually use that term. And, and now even from, Maria wrote when she opened things up, it's, it's gotten to be a thing. And I think you're, uh, you know, you're at the right place at the right time, especially with pandemic. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you. No, thank you. and appreciate the time. Yeah. So just for those who haven't met me, I'm Pete Durand. Uh, I've been with Aquia for nine years and um, just want to spend a few minutes really talking about, um, you know, modernization, but it's really about agility and scale. Um, and we're all trying to, you know, I think the pandemic, certainly with everybody now having to telework and work remotely and we can't go into offices is, you know, continuing to really drive uh, more and more digital transformation. Um, you know, it's becoming more and more important. So kind of with that, if you haven't heard of Acquia, so what, you know, our whole role is really in empowering government agencies and citizens through really digital experiences and like, what does that mean? And so we've really been on the, the forefront of, you know, using open source technology, um, Drupal, um, as well as, bear with me, my computer's not paying attention to me. All right, so just real high level, um, but, you know, candidly, Aqua is an open digital experience platform. Um, so today we're, we're actually operating the world's largest Drupal platform as a service. And then part of this is we've completely mapped in a whole digital experience platform to that. Um, which is really interesting. So we're taking advantage of everything with open source technology, open API approaches, open architecture, and leveraging the cloud. So this is all coming together, you know, really well for, for so many of the, uh, the federal agencies and commercial organizations uh, that we work with. Um, so uh, I, I think digital transformation is, you know, it's the next layer of, uh, you know, an entire open experience where organizations are really trying to figure out, you know, how do I, how do I really help user journeys? How do I help end users and constituents get to the right content, make the right decisions? And how do I do this online with multi-channel and take advantage of commercial marketing capabilities? So, you know, that's where we've been really fortunate to, uh, to play in that space. Um, and then I'll you know, just kind of walk you through, I'm not going to spend all this afternoon here, but you know, we've got a pretty good branch of organizations. This is certainly not all of them uh, across the US federal government and uh, public sector in general that are really leveraging open source technology, leveraging the cloud and really trying to figure out how to modernize their, their digital experiences. Um, kind of cop security, obviously that's a big thing and that's a big part of us. 
Um, but so one of the things I, I thought I would kind of share is, you know, it's, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of work over the years for agencies to modernize. What does that mean? You know, what does digital transformation uh, mean? And so I maybe you thought I'd use a, a good example of a project um, that Acquia is working with, uh, with our partner called uh, Core, Corionics Government Solutions. So, you know, today uh, we're just started a project, um, probably the 10th largest website in the federal government. Um, and it's, it's the Social Security Administration, and it's really interesting as, you know, they're just embarking on their digital journey. So one is, you know, making decisions about can we use the cloud, how do we move to the cloud, so they're, you know, figuring out, you know, they've made a decision to move to the cloud, and then how do you start bringing in CMS technology, open source technologies, because at the end of the day, we have an organization as large as they are, they're, you know, there's a constituents, if you will, us citizens, um, it's not so easy to go into an SSA office to go get benefits and seek benefits and how, how do I interact online? So, you know, with an organization like, like SSA, um, that's their whole vision. How do I move services online? Also realizing that some of their constituents may not be as, you know, computer savvy as many of us. So, you know, what I can say is, you know, for, for an organization like SSA, um, you know, taking the open source model, it creates an enormous amount of agility, flexibility, um, and then the ability to add really governance, you know, into these models. So that's really, um, you know, the most interesting thing we have going on this month, uh, Tom, um, you know, is working with that and, you know, continuing the, the fight with uh, leveraging open source, you know, within the federal government here. Yeah. Can I ask you a quick question? Uh, I'm wondering how the IDEA Act is affecting government agencies with these mandates. I know you've got, we've talked before, you have a lot of activity around that. How's that coming along government-wide, would you say? Um, I, I'd say it's actually, it's, I think it's really, you know, it's really caught on because, you know, and I've, I've talked before, you know, quite often a lot of these are, you know, websites, applications, things were really designed by engineers. And, you know, what we're seeing, you know, with our customers is that, you know, they're really taking really this user-centric approach and going, okay, how does the user need to interact versus, you know, us engineers deciding, hey, this is how the thing works, you figure it out. So that's, I see that as, is really starting to have teeth with it. And now that, you know, not only government agencies, not, uh, I'll say not the, the citizens themselves, but the people that work, you know, in federal agencies, they've got the same demands of their own internal systems. You know, how do I better interact? And yeah, using that whole human-centered or user-centered design. So we see so many organizations going down that path first, really figuring out the UX. And then, you know, based on that, you know, making the determination, okay, what's the right kinds of platforms and tools and things to, to support that. So, yeah, I'm, we're actually pretty excited to see that it is starting to take off. It, it is a challenge for many organizations, but I, I think it's really starting to, to take root and hold. Great. Well, thank you, Peter, for that talk. I really enjoyed it. And we'll see you the next time. Have a good holidays. We don't Thanks. See you you as well. Appreciate it. Great. Uh, that was Peter Durant. Uh, Peter is the VP of Federal over at Acquia Federal Solutions. And next up, our last tech talk of the day. So there's no pressure on this next person at all. We have with us Joe Walden, and Joe Walden is the CTO over at uh, Blue Prism Software over all the Americas. And uh, we've been talking a lot about RPA and some of the benefits that it has. And uh, I think this last year, it really went to the mission and it took another, took yet another step 
John. So I'm really interested to see uh, see what you have to say. Well, well first of all, can you hear me? I can hear you. There you go. Just wanted to make sure. Unfortunately, some of you can see me as well. So I apologize for that ahead of time. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with who Blue Prism is, Blue Prism is basically an RPA vendor. Uh, it's one of the first RPA vendors uh, out there. We've been establishing the market oh, basically since 2001. Uh, came really to the U.S. when I was hired with the organization back in uh, 2015 or so. It's um, It's been an amazing run. It's incredible as to how it went from very much an educational orientation to really first and, and first idea for almost every organization out there. Um, you know, and some of the reason for that you can see on the screen here is the amount of hype that's been put into this idea of age of automation. The idea that, you know, the, the one critical one is that up to 50% of work that's being done today is being done in such a way because systems haven't been integrated, systems haven't been um, upgraded. You know, you, we've had two talks just recently about the data fabric and the idea of CMS. Both of these are great, but if you're still dealing with things that are completely disparate systems, it creates a real problem of being able to resource to be able to do it, not even to mention when your resources are disparate in disparate locations across the country because we can't travel and everything else. The really key point to all of these numbers and the excitement around this is this idea that as we begin to consider modernization across the board, we have to recognize that that means it's still, despite the educational efforts that have taken place, that means a lot of different things to a lot of, a lot of different people. Um, some folks are just worried about doing task recordings and being able to re replay those effectively. So others are really, when they begin to think about a process, are considering a process from an end-to-end -end perspective. Personally, I don't ever feel that a full process end-to-end -end can be fully automated or at least not the exceptions. And so this idea that you often hear about, you know, elimination of jobs, which, you know, generally is not as concerned or prevalent within the bounds of the federal government. But earlier, um, Andrew, um, Andre Mendez talked about using money effectively. And as you begin to look at the processes that have to be done within the federal organization, how they change depending on the administration and everything else, it's really critical to think about how that money is being spent, whether you're going to try and do an end-to-end -end process or whether you're going to reimagine the process, especially reimagining processes in light of the pandemic, in light of the fact that we can't necessarily have everybody going into a DMV or going into you know, an IRS office or going in wherever office they might need to. That all being said, I want to do a little bit of background as to why there's so many different people who have so many different views as to what modernization and AI looks at. In order to do that, I really want to talk about different industrial revolutions that have occurred. You know, the idea that, you know, industrial revolution of one was, you know, the initial mechanical orientation, and then we had the electricity. And for most people, the Industrial Revolution 3.0 is where we're at to a great extent. We're at this idea that information is being provided, information is available. Um, you know, we've got all sorts of data systems, all sorts of data fabrics that are interconnected or trying to be interconnected. But it's not quite made, most organizations have not quite made the leap yet to be able to utilize and leverage both the cloud technologies that are changing so much, or even more importantly, that final step of really automating things across the board. And that's a critical component because as you look at automation, you have to understand whether you're talking about, as I said earlier, you know, that, that desktop automation, whether you're talking about end-to-end -end automation, if you're talking about 
you know, autonomous type automation. And the critical elements that you have to consider across all of this is that intelligent automation for enterprises is not really made up of any one distinct technology. You already have, as I said before, in the industrial um, revolution of the 3.0, you've got people and you've got plenty of systems. You've got the systems that may be connected, may not be connected, but it's really understanding that these two make up certain components. The third component is what you should be considering nowadays based upon the first slide that I showed is this idea of a digital workforce. And this particular conversation is really supposed to be about um, IT modernization. And from my perspective, unless you're considering a unified workforce that includes both your people, your processes, your systems, um, and the digital workforce and how they're integrating with each one of those, you're really missing something. I don't want to talk in nebulous terms all day from that perspective. I'm certainly not trying to do a sales pitch for you. I really am here to inform you. But I decided because the whole definition of this was the idea of IT modernization is to take a step back and look at sort of ITIL. And I love the definition of practices in the ITIL definition because it talks about sets of organizational resources. My definition of resources would be for you to encourage not only your people, your digital workforce, but also your uh, systems. But then the second part of the definition talks about it's the capabilities that really happen within the bounds of the processes and procedures. And the key item that I want you to think about for a few minutes is the fact that automation itself is not ever a limitation of what you have in place because it's really a matter of leveraging that hierarchical, that historical data systems that you have and using them more efficiently to better accommodate the funding and the location and the resiliency that your organization may have. And because we're talking, you know, ITIL, I decided to focus on three relatively simple things, you know, things like we've had customers do password resets, we've had customers doing things like onboarding, um, especially in this separated stage of having some people located, located all over, the idea of onboarding and offboarding, especially offboarding because it creates such risk, is really a critical component across the board. Um, the idea of being able to provide this is um, really getting back to this idea that if you can move some of these processes, and I'm not saying all of them, because you will want to have exceptions, those types of things handled by the human, but if you can move some of these to a digital workforce, you're going to end up with some really critical other sides of ITIL that are going to be covered. Things like reporting and measuring. Every digital worker that's out there is going to give you audit, audit, audit capability and governance that you probably didn't have before. And when I talk about assigning work to the right individual, this is something that organizations, both federal and corporate, do very well. You know, you don't give a junior accountant something to, to, that they're not going to be able to do. And so we, we move work around real well. Well, you need to consider, uh, based upon the statistics that I showed you, how much of that work can be moved first and foremost to a digital workforce. I did mention that I've been doing this for a while and I am kind of passionate about it and so forth. I'm going to play a brief video here because one of the questions that I always get asked is, well, it may not work with my system. I've been with Blue Prism going on six years now or so, and I have yet to actually find a system that you could not interact with, a process that I could not automate, at least to some extent. What you see on the right-hand side of the screen is actually the, the, the diagram, the flow, is actually how you go about creating these automations. 
And the left-hand sides are the sides that are, are the system itself. What you see is it actually interacting with all sorts of different systems. You know, you see it interacting with the service now. It'll show up with SAP. I think in this whole quick little demonstration that I do, the only thing that we don't demonstrate is a mainframe, uh, which I know is out there as well. The key point to this is just to understand that the systems that you have are great. Granted, most of you probably don't have a particular game, but it's even possible on that one. That happened to be included in the video that I had. But the systems that you have are the backbone to being able to provide in this pandemic area because the processes, the requirements aren't going to change. What's going to change is how you be able to deliver that information. And the idea of being able to have a process that is in place and then being able to deliver it, whether it's via mobile, this is perfect timing from that regard, a mobile app or anything else is critical to being able to be compliant across an entire element of omni-channel approaches. And this has served us really well. I mean, we've got a number of federal clients. Uh, I'm not going to read you all the use cases from that perspective. You know, we are, are FedRAMP moderate availability from that perspective. The, the key thing that I really want to spend a, just a moment or two on is just understanding that as you begin to look at moving your organizations across the spectrum of, of of technology, recognize that a digital worker becomes an enablement for you. You know, so often federal workers, um, you know, whatever group joint they may want to be, whatever mission they may end up doing, they're dealing with a lot of antiquated systems. Well, as you look to the cloud, as you look to what a lot of folks want to be able to do nowadays, they want to be able to look at the newer technologies. The neat thing about digital workers for your organization is they really do become the focal point for this. I'm a big proponent of recognizing that AI and ML is great, but unless it's done within the bounds of a process, it's a science experiment. And so when we do this, and when we provide digital workers, understand that they're capable of looking at things like sentiment, um, character recognition, even images, um, you know, in order to be able to provide safety to somebody, you'd be able to provide resiliencies within your organization. And that key idea of thinking digital first is really critical not only to improving your processes but also being able to leverage technologies that a lot of the uh, employees nowadays want to be able to investigate work with at the same point in time getting your money's worth from that perspective i'm going to end pretty quick here and just uh just a moment here but i do want to i've got to give you this is required the, the sort of you know why why us from that perspective a digital workforce needs to be considered really across four key areas you know, you want to be able to train it. You want to be able to bring in those intelligent skills that I mentioned. You want to be able to scale it. You want to be able to make sure that, especially in this idea of pandemic, that when you have these needs for resiliencies to be able to roll out VPNs to 100,000 people, that you can have a, a workforce that's capable of doing that. You know, from a security standpoint, I already mentioned that as well. I mean, everything a digital worker does is far more secure than what a person does. You don't have to worry about what they see on their screen. You don't have to worry about whether or not they're going to do something the way that they're supposed to. And the fact is, it's going to be done much more efficiently than in any other way. And again, the one final point, if you've ended up looking at RPA in the past, if you feel like you've gotten to a point where I had somebody mention the other day, um, just being RPA tired, uh, the fact that they've done all sorts of things, they've They've been trying to figure out how to really move it up on the ramp from that perspective. One of the reasons why it's, it's so important to consider those 
factors that were listed at the beginning is because this becomes an enabler for you. I've been doing lots of technologies for a lot of different years, and this is probably the RPA and the automation area is really a key component, and it's got such fast, good um, ability to be able to really deliver that you want to be able to give it some consideration. Any questions on that, Tom? I know you're the only one asking questions. I didn't really look. Yeah. Yeah, we're just a little compressed for time. John, I thought that was a, a great thing. What, what, what do you say to folks like, oh, I'm going to lose my job? Uh, you know, I, I think this is one of the biggest false things about RPA that I've ever heard. What, what, I mean, you get that, I'm sure. But how, what's the first response to that? It's a huge fallacy because digital workers, we're all overworked. You know, the idea of a 40-hour work week went out the window with the invention of the cell phone because we're all electronically leashed, for lack of a better term. The use of resources intelligently is critical. Um, most companies that say they want to reduce FTEs, they find that they do have less successful orientations. The idea that we have to reduce is really not critical. The idea that move work to where it makes the most sense. Those people need to do those things that are exceptions. They need to do things that have lower confidence when you're using ML and AI. They're still a viable part of your workforce, but you want to unify that with these really junior workers that can do almost, you know, again, I've been here six years, I've yet to come across something I can't, can't automate, at least to some extent. So it's not a matter of replacement, it's a matter of what I've often said, I even actually think I first said this on GovMatters TV, it's a really about a force multiplication, force multiplier, rather than a replacement. Great, great. Thank you that, for that, John. I really, really appreciate it. Not a and problem. I, I appreciate your time. Yeah, today. we'll get you back. That was good. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, next up, we have our uh, last panel of the day, and it is a good one. And we have our, let me introduce our moderator, uh, Isaac Constance. Isaac, you want to come on? There he is. Um, Isaac is a staff writer over at GovLoop, must follow, must read. And, uh, you know, you've done it for us a couple times, and we keep having you back. So, uh, you know, that, that first panel was pretty good. You're going to have to really uh, have your A game today. But I, I was going to say yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, haven't screwed up anything too bad just yet, it seems like. So, well, yeah, today's not over yet. No, just right, kidding. Right. Uh, yeah. Good luck on your panel. I'll, I'll, we'll see you in a few minutes. This is gonna, Sounds good. Wait. Thank you, Tom. Um, so, yeah, start off wishing everybody a happy holidays. Uh, I was hoping to get my Christmas tree in the background, but sadly, the, the outlet actually uh and then the charging cable didn't reach it but anyway thanks for having me tom and uh you know i always enjoy these atark events like tom said the the first panel was phenomenal so uh i'm looking forward to this one i i know we'll follow in their footsteps the best we can um starting off and I, I know you know usually i like giving a good spiel to open this up but uh we've got a ton to get to in this one uh you know what the topic is it modernization and government so i say we just start with the introductions, get right to it, and uh, yeah, hop into the session. So what I'll do is I'll introduce each panelist. Uh, I'll go one by one, uh, since we've got eight panelists on this session. And if each panelist just wants to give a quick uh, three-minute introduction of what they're working on currently and where they stand on the IT modernization front, uh, we can head into the question and answers after that. So uh, starting off, First, I'd like to introduce Danielle Metz. Uh, Danielle is the principal director for the Deputy Chief Information Office for Information Enterprise 
at the U.S. Department of Defense. So, Danielle, how's it going? And uh, yeah, what, what's going on on the IT modernization front over at DAOD? Hey, Danielle, you there? Well, brave new yeah. world. Oh, hey, sorry. Hi. I'm sorry. I didn't realize I had to do star six. Uh, no problem. Hi, everyone. Um, unfortunately, I'm not able to do Zoom. I, I'm in the Pentagon today, so we'll have to do it uh, via the, the phone. Um, so very excited to be a part of this virtual uh, panel. Uh, a quick change has happened, so I'm no longer the principal uh, director, but I am the acting deputy CIO for Information Enterprise. Um, and we have a lot that is going on in terms of modernization activities, uh, with the catalyst being the, the National Emergency Declaration. Um, so the biggest thing that my office and team have been responsible for is the um, creation and implementation of the commercial virtual remote. Um, the IL-2 instantiation of Microsoft Teams. Uh, we did this in response to the maximum uh, telework uh, back in early March of this year. And it was a partnership with Microsoft and the Military Services, Combatant Commands, DISA, Joint Staff J6, and the DAFAs. And we were able to leverage our, uh, the, the partnership that we have with Microsoft, existing contracts and licenses that we had with Microsoft to create this uh, CVR environment in order for the department's workforce to connect anywhere with anyone on any device. And so originally it was, supposed, it was a temporary uh, solution. Uh, it was going to go through September. We were able to extend it to June of 2021. And that extension has allowed uh, the department some time in order for us to ensure that we were able to get our secure DOD Microsoft Cloud environment on commercial parity with what we have in CVR today, but in a more secure um, manner. And so that is uh, the work that we are doing right now. We've accelerated our uh, migration plans um, by at least 18 months to be able to get um, where we need to go um, by June. And so that is a significant undertaking across the department and it is um, a thrill to be a part of this activity to see how we are really making the department uncomfortable in terms of moving not only quickly, but being able to deliver um, discrete capabilities more quickly and more agilely than what we've ever done before um, and build upon them in a rapid manner. Um, and so that was the blueprint that we did when we implemented CVR back in the, the March-April timeframe. And that is exactly what we're doing here. And it really shows how that DevSecOps model works um, in order to not really go for the perfect, build all your requirements, um, and then deliver capability to the user, but to get um, minimal viable product capability out so the user can iterate. And then you get their feedback where you can build upon and enhance and uh, really maximize uh, the, the full breadth of, of, of what it means to have um, modern um, software. Uh, so that's, that's one aspect of, of the work that we're doing. And then very quickly in terms of IT modernization for um, the fourth estate, uh, our office has uh, been leading the effort uh, along with DISA um, to put up a, 
a plan in place to uh, optimize uh, 26 networks down to two, consolidate service desks down to one, and to optimize over 600 IT contracts into about a handful. As this work has started in FY18, um, a lot of good work took place in terms of advocacy, collaboration, defining the strategy, and then in FY20, um, it's been the year of execution. So we're moving out uh, on that. Uh, on that, it's called our fourth estate network optimization. So a lot of great work, despite the fact that we're working remote, uh, we're still able to execute mission um, because of the advancements that we've made. Uh, particularly with collaboration and Office Suite productivity through CVR, how we're moving that into a secure uh, Microsoft uh, DoD cloud environment, and then continuing our work with the DAFAs or the fourth estate agencies to be able to optimize and get uh, them on a, a single um, single provider, uh, single service provider through DISA uh, with two uh, modernized networks and associated services on top of that. So I know I just went uh, very quickly, it was a whirlwind uh, explanation of the work that we're doing, but I was really excited to share just those uh, two big uh, activities that we have going on. So with that, I'll, I'll pass it back uh, to you, Isaac. Thanks so much. Yeah, and uh, definitely look forward to diving a little bit more into those in these uh, next 50 minutes we have coming up. Uh, so next, let's go over to Renata Spinks. Renata is the Chief Technology Officer for the U.S. Marine Forces Cyberspace Command, uh, also within the U.S. Department of Defense. Renata, if, uh, I'm not sure if you have the capability to turn on your camera, but uh, feel free to give a nice introduction as well. Oh, for 2 so far. Renata, can you hear me? All right, uh, we'll keep on plugging along, see if we can reconnect with Renata uh, at the end of this lineup. Uh, next up, we'll keep it within uh, DOD and go to Frank Kaneshi. Uh, Frank is the Chief Technology Officer uh, for the U United States Department of the Air Force. Uh, Frank, I hope I didn't butcher your name. That's close, Isaac. Next close oh, enough, but close. Getting <laughs> better. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, hello, everybody. You know, I, as we got into COVID, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to maintain mission for all the airmen out there. And it was kind of interesting because for us, you know, we're located around the world with 160 major installations and like 300 others. So when we said that we have to push everybody out of the bases and everything else, this was a massive undertaking of moving, you know, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, because we have 750,000 people roughly out of the bases and move them into a telework environment. Now this caused some issues, obviously. Uh, we had to update the network capabilities with the VPNs. We had to update the telephone bridge capabilities. Uh, we appreciate DOD, Danielle, with the, the team's work because that actually helped us collaborate. And there were people who were trying to do all their collaboration methods at the same time using several tools, some you know virtual tools that we have, as well as some telephone capabilities that for special operators actually utilize. But the major emphasis we're trying to do is to, to now is accelerate what we've been doing for digital modernization and transformation. For instance, we're trying to put, we're operating so that way, putting LTE and 5G at all the bases. We have a plan to do this right now. We have 10 bases already established with licensing agreements. We'll have 20 more bases established probably in January, and it's going to continue on for that for the rest of the United States. 
and eventually probably get to Europe. So we're trying to get the com communications network at the bases completely done for LTE, 5G capabilities. On top of that, we're also looking at, you know, what automation capabilities we actually have out there. You know, one of the speakers talked about RPA. Yeah, we've been doing RPA too for a while because we decided we had to get rid of some of the standardized, you know, stupid act repetitive activities that people were trying to do and, and modernize it and make it faster and more agile for everybody. So we've been pushing RPA out there as well as some other capabilities for uh, using AI ML for various predictive mechanical analysis for the engines and, and everything else associated with it. And this is where we're also going to have the capability with the, the network for the 5G is actually using how much data we can actually get out of the IoT sensors that are each of the bases and the, particularly the depots and actually analyze them and give, them, give the maintenance people some, some predictive analysis of what parts are going to be needed as well as what needs to be done. On top of that also, we've looked at the user experience. I mean, this is kind of interesting because everybody says the user experience would be great, but of course, when you really get onto the field, you find that for 160 installations, the user experience is different in each installation. Somehow, that's the way it works. There are bases, and in bases, configurations are somewhat different. So we're trying to measure with data the user experience and looking at what can we do to actually make it more effective for the user environment. And, and on top of that all, uh, you know, we're trying to produce enough devices and use various devices for doing not only uh, unclassified processing, but also for classified processing out there. And so we had to generate some more devices, get it out to the field, as well as supporting, you know, the mission because we have to support the mission out there. And not everybody in the workforce can actually, you know, telework at home. Aircraft mechanics cannot actually be there at home. We can use AR, VR for them to support the mechanics that are sitting in the field, but they cannot, you know, everybody cannot be there. So we have rotation schedules established on top of that and the maintenance of that, as well as, you know, we, we track COVID across all the bases and know exactly, you know, the effects of that and what we plan to do and use that to actually determine the rotation schedules as well as any other effects that we have to maintain to keep the mission going. So in essence, what we're trying to do is make the user, which is our airman, as effective as possible by using automation tools and techniques and, and try to ensure that we get the mission accomplished. Perfect. Thanks, Frank. Um, going down the list, jo Justin Marsico is next, uh, Deputy Assistant Commissioner and Chief Data Officer for the Office of Data Transparency uh, within the Bureau of the Fiscal Service and the Uni United States Department of the Treasury. So, Justin, I'll turn things over to you. Thanks, Isaac. Uh, thanks for having me here. So as you heard in my title, one of the things that I help to focus on is data um, for my organization. So I work for the fiscal service and the fiscal services job is to help to run the financial operations of the US government. So we provide payment services, we collect revenue on behalf of the federal government, we issue um, auctions, um, to raise money and to help finance government operations. And all of those activities, as you can imagine, involve a lot of data. So we collect a lot of data and what we're trying to do right now is to figure out how to do that in a better way um, so that we can be smarter, make better decisions and be more effective um, in our mission. So I've been focused on three things um, generally over the last year. Um, the first is pretty basic. Um, but I think it's really important. It's improving our data governance. Um, 
what we're trying to do is to bring leaders together across our organization so that instead of making decisions about data in silos, we are eyes open about the impacts that data has across the organization. Um, and when we're making changes related to data or making investments in architecture that affect data, we're doing so thinking about the benefits to the entire enterprise instead of to the individual systems that uh, that we might be managing uh, in our different offices. So one example of a, of a product that's come out of um, our data governance efforts has been just establishing principles of what the future of data looks like. So these are things like <clears throat> instead of just moving to the cloud and copying and pasting our data architecture, really taking advantage of, of the types of tools and, and offerings that the cloud has um, to offer, making sure that when we are modernizing our systems, we are getting rid of manual data, uh, data movements and replacing them with automated data flows. So anyway, that's the first thing. We're focused on data governance. The second is improving the way that we deliver data to our customers. Um, so again, because we sit at the center of financial operations, we have a lot of data and the public consumes a lot of that data to understand the federal government and the, the broader economy. And we're trying to make improvements to all that data um, to make it easier for the public to use and consume our data and understand the financial operations of the, of the government. So we recently uh, started an effort to consolidate all of our data onto one site, just to make it easy to know where it all is and to uh, establish uniform metadata and to make sure that we have data dictionaries. And for the first time, we actually have APIs now that the public can ping uh, or, or build off of um, to get our data the moment that it is, uh, it's released. So that's the second thing. The third thing uh, that we're doing is the, one of the most exciting things in my mind, which is doing analytics. Um, I often find that producing analytics really gets people excited and allows you to invest in some of the basics of data management um, and data architecture because they, people see the cool things that you're producing and the value that it's bringing to the organization. Um, there's a, a one uh, project that we kicked off recently that is really exciting and is taking advantage of um, natural language processing um, through AI. One of the roles that Treasury has is translating appropriations from PDFs into data that goes into systems that authorizes agencies to be able to spend money. That's like one of the first steps in the process um, that turns something from Congress into money that agencies can spend. And the way that we do that today is we have a team of experts who read through the PDF legislation and who mark it up and then who enter that into a database. So what we're trying to do right now is to develop an AI that can read 